Hello. People in this country spend billions of dollars on pills. Medical pills, pills to get them to sleep at night, pills to wake them up in the morning. It seems as if the usual attitude toward illness is that it can be cured by killing some disease. Well, I'd like to propose to you a new kind of medicine. My topic today is laughter, the best medicine. Many people actually have said that laughter, the ability to be joyful, both are important. So I'm not really stating a new truth, but I want to emphasize that truth. Because so often when people talk philosophy and spiritual truths and all the things that we've been talking on these weekly shows, people tend to get very serious. I remember I went to Austin, Texas, and the reason I remember this experience particularly is that I was talking to a university group, and you'd think that these young people would be full of joy and, and uh, uh, laughter. And I told a joke, and everybody looked at me absolutely stunned. Here I was talking philosophy, and I told a joke. This wasn't done. And then I tried telling several more, and I tried to liven them up. And by the end of the uh, talk, they were sort of, sort of smiling a little bit and then looking at each other to see if they'd done something wrong. When I came back a year later, then they laughed heartily. They'd somehow gotten used to the idea. But it seems so strange that people would feel that truth, and uh, especially spiritual truth, has to be something solemn. Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda used to say that uh, many people look upon religion as a funeral. They go to church as if they were attending a funeral. And he says the truth of it is that religion is really the funeral of all sorrows. That if you can learn it in the right way, not the hollow, sort of uh, doleful, mournful look that so many preachers affect, but just if you get close to this divine self within you, you'll find that that is the source of all happiness. I never knew anybody who could make you laugh the way my spiritual teacher, Paramahansa Yogananda, did. He would sometimes tell a story. He had a Bengali accent. It was a little hard to understand him sometimes. And when he got going on his jokes, it was pretty hard to follow sometimes. Even at that, his laughter was so infectious that you just found yourself splitting your sides, laughing. Well, the thing is that when you laugh, somehow all your cells rejoice. The amount of energy that your body is filled with is increased in direct proportion to how much willingness you have. And when your will is low, when you don't have much energy, then uh, you find that the body also tends to fall into illness. The way you think, your attitude toward life. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I had an operation, and uh, later the doctor said two things that were uh, almost apparently mutually contradictory. One was, it was the worst case I ever saw. The second was, you recovered faster than anyone I ever saw. And how did that, how did that recovery take place after such a grave condition? Well, because I was happy. I just figured, well, 
what does it matter? I had a, a local anesthesia, so I could hear him going at it with this, uh, it sounded like a chainsaw. And I just thought, well, it's not my body. Let him do what he wants to. And so I was carrying on a discussion with somebody who was there and not paying any thought to it. And my, my attitude toward it was that, well, if it's got to happen, it's got to happen, so why care about it? I can't change it for uh, wishing it weren't happening. And so, actually, I recovered faster from what people would say was just a physical thing. Uh, you couldn't do anything about it. And yet, yes, I could, because I put my energy out. I was really well in record time. Laughter is the best possible medicine. I had a friend who was a, a health food cook. That is to say, she cooked. She wasn't a professional cook, but she cooked with a very sort of grim allegiance to all the principles of health foods. And the food she made was just as grim as that attitude. And I said to her one day, I said, look, the body has to feel joyful, otherwise it's not going to digest the food no matter how good it is for you. So you ought to make it taste good, for heaven's sake. Even if you compromise a little bit with these high, high principles, if it tastes good, it's going to do a great deal more good for us. If it looks good, it's going to do a great deal more good for us. And it's the same thing with laughter. Now, the thing with laughter is that too often it isn't generous laughter. Too often it's written laughing at rather than laughing with. One of the wonderful things about Yogananda's laughter, it was always laughing with. It was sort of he had sort of a, a, you might say, a God's eye view of humanity where he could see their foibles and love them all the same because we're all in this together. We've all got things to learn from one another. He used to say that God has a good sense of humor. And uh, one time people were talking about the different foibles of uh, various ones. And he said, well, why be surprised? After all, this is just God's zoo. One of the authors that I've always loved, I think he's the funniest writer who ever lived, is P.G. Woodhouse. And the thing I like particularly about his comedy, apart from the fact that it really is comical, is uh, that it's kindly. Again, he had sort of a God's eye view of humanity. It was seeing the absurdity of mankind and yet loving mankind at the same time. He was a very kind person, a very uh, accepting person. He didn't judge anyone, even people who did great harm to him. He would always try to see the humorous side and sort of excuse them as just being a part of the show. I thought I'd like to read to you just a, an excerpt from a story. It's from the world of Mr. Mulliner, and uh, the Mulliner tales are, are very special. This one is called Archibald and the Masses. And I'm not going to read you much of this story, but it's one that has uh, a short bit at the beginning that's funny in itself and complete in itself. This year, socialism, said a pint of bitter thoughtfully. You see a lot of that about nowadays. Seems to be all a go. Nothing in the previous conversation, we had been speaking of Mangelwurzels, had led up to the remark, but in the matter of debate, we of the bar parlor of the angler's rest are quick movers. We range, we flit, we leap from point to point. As an erudite gin and Angostura once put it, we are like Caesar's wife, ready for anything. 
Rapidly adjusting our minds, we prepared to deal with this new topic. Ah, agreed a small bass. You may well say that. You well may, said a light logger. Spreading all the time, socialism is. Maybe something in it, too. What, oh, what I mean is it doesn't seem hardly right somehow that you and I should be living off the fat of the land, as the saying is, while there's others in humbler circumstances uh, who don't know where to turn for the next half pint. Mr. Mulliner nodded. That, he said, was precisely how my nephew Archibald felt. He was a socialist, was he? He became one, temporarily. The small bass wrinkled his forehead. Seems to me you've told us about your nephew Archibald before. Was he the one who had the trouble with the explorer? That was Osbert. The one who stammered? Uh, no, that was George. <sighs> you seem to have so many nephews. I have been singularly blessed in that respect, agreed Mr. Mulliner. But as regards Archibald, it may serve to recall him to you if I mention that he was generally considered to be London's leading exponent of the art of imitating a hen laying an egg. Of course, yes, he got engaged to a girl named Aurelia Camelie. At the time when my story begins, he was still engaged to her and possibly the happiest young man in the whole W1 postal district. But the storm clouds, I regret to say, were only just over the horizon. The tempest, which was so nearly to wreck the bark of love, had already begun to gather. Few fashionable engagements, said Mr. Mulliner, have ever started with fairer prospects of success than that of my nephew Archibald and Aurelia Camerley. Even cynical Mayfair had to admit that, for once, a really happy and enduring marriage appeared to be indicated. For such a union, there is no surer basis than a community of taste, and this the young couple possessed in full measure. Archibald liked imitating hens, and Aurelia liked listening to him. She used to say she could listen to him all day, and she sometimes did. It was after one of these sessions when, hoarse but happy, he was walking back to his rooms to dress for dinner, that he found his progress impeded by a man of seedy aspect, who, without any preamble but a short hiccup, said that he had not been able to taste bread for three days. It puzzled Archibald a little that a complete stranger should be making him the recipient of confidences which might more reasonably have been bestowed upon his medical adviser. But it so happened that only recently he himself had not been able to taste even Stilton cheese. So he replied as one having knowledge. Don't you worry, old thing, he said. That often happens when you get a cold in the head. It passes off. I have not got a cold in the head, sir, said the man. I've got pains in the back, weak lungs, a sick wife, stiff joints, five children, internal swellings, and no pension after seven years in His Majesty's army, owing to jealousy and eye quarters, but not a cold in the head. Why I can't taste bread is because I, I have no money to buy it. I wish, sir, you could hear my children crying for bread. I'd love to, said Archibald civilly. I must come up and see you sometime, but tell me about bread. Does it cost much? Well, sir, it's this way. If you buy it by the bottle, that's expensive. What I always say is best to get it in a cask. But then again, that, that needs capital. 
If I slipped you a fiver, could you manage? I'd try, sir. Right-ho, said Archibald. This episode had, had a singular effect on Archibald Mulliner. I will not say that it made him think deeply, for he was incapable of thinking deeply. But it engendered a curious gravity, an odd sense that life was stern and life was earnest. And he was still in the grip of this new mood when he reached his rooms and Meadows, his man, brought him a tray with a decanter and siphon upon it. Uh, Meadows, said Archibald, are you busy for the moment? No, sir. Then let us speak for a while on the subject of bread. Do you realize, Meadows, that there are blokes who can't get bread? They want it. Their wives want it. Their children are all for it. But in spite of this unanimity, what is the upshot? No bread. I bet you didn't know that, Meadows. Yes, sir. There is a great deal of poverty in London. No, really? Oh, yes, indeed, sir. You should go down to a place like Bottleton East. That is where you hear the voice of the people. Oh, what people? The masses, sir. The martyred proletariat. If you are interested in the martyred proletariat, I could supply you with some well-written pamphlets. I have been a member of the League for the Dawn of Freedom for many years, sir. Our object, as the name implies, is to hasten the coming revolution. Uh, like in Russia, do you mean? Yes, sir. Uh, massacres and all that? Yes, sir. Now, listen, Meadows, said Archibald firmly. Fun's fun, but no rot about stabbing me with a dripping knife. I won't have it, do you understand? Very good, sir. That being clear, you may now bring me those pamphlets. I'd like to have a look at them. And so the story, it's a very funny story all the way through. In fact, I would recommend the book. But uh, Yogananda used to say that a recipe for a healthy life is to read one funny story a day. That's not all there is to it. But it's a lot of it. Being able to laugh, not at people. Listen to the way people laugh. Some people laugh from the heart. Some people laugh from the mind, <laughs> like this. Some people laugh in a very egotistical way. <laughs> you listen to them in restaurants. The more they drink, the more they start imposing their laughter on one another. Some people snicker. Some people just sort of chuckle, sort of cynically. I'm talking about the kind of laugh that comes from the heart. Not a belly laugh, not a mind laugh, not a mindless laugh. But a kind of laugh that comes from just the joy of living. Learn to laugh from your heart. Learn to bring that, that joy and merriment upward and outward and just let it sort of fill your aura and fill the room that you're in. If you can laugh like that a little bit every day, you will find a surprising change coming in your life if you haven't been accustomed to doing this before. As you may or may not know, I belong to a, a large community near Nevada City, California, called Ananda World Brotherhood Village. And here the people laugh freely and easily and happily. I took a slideshow of uh, uh, this community to Europe one time to help share what uh, we did over here, and I remember the comments I received in Germany. It was interesting, but particularly in Germany. They criticized it. 
They criticized the slideshow for one reason only, that people were smiling too much. It couldn't be genuine. They couldn't be that happy. It had to be a put-on thing. It had to be that every time somebody took their photograph, somebody said, cheese. But in fact, it wasn't so at all. Those pictures were taken very much uh, sort of in, like on it with a candid camera. That's the way people should be able to live. Laughter isn't something you put on. Laughter is something that you need to understand within yourself that you not merely have joy, you are joy. That comes from meditation. That comes from getting your own brain out of the way with all those restless thoughts and comes from getting yourself so centered and calm within yourself that you see that center of calmness as if at your own heart's center. Be centered within yourself. You know, in the Indian scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, there's a very interesting statement made, one that's made as a rhetorical question because it's meant to be something obvious that anybody would accept. And within that cultural context, within that historical context, no doubt that was understood. What it said is, to the person without peace, how is happiness possible? Now you translate that into the <clears throat> context of our country today and see how people equate happiness with excitement, laughter with sort of a, a hysteria almost. If you listen to people laughing in, in uh, uh, comedy shows and so on, you see that that kind of laughter is almost like the mind out of control. They don't believe that peace is the way to happiness. They believe that the more you can get the mind excited, that's why you, you look at the uh, television and see them trying to attract you to something that they're claiming will make you happy. This again is a great delusion to think that anything is going to make you happy. It's a superstition to think that something inanimate can give you happiness. But uh, <clears throat> watch them how they try to win you to this thought that this will make you happy. It's always with great excitement, jumping up and down, laughing like this and so on. When I talk of laughter, I talk of something more internal, something that comes from the calmness within, something that comes from having touched this inner joy. When you have that, wherever you go, you can share it with people. It's a lovely thing to walk down the streets of a city and see all those lonely, unhappy faces and just sort of smile at a stranger and often he'll sort of look like this, but sometimes he'll respond. Sometimes it'll be as if, uh, oh, somebody's noticed me. S uh, they'll feel something from you. Live in that way all the time. You can take with you wherever you go, a portable heaven or a portable hell. Yours is the choice. Why not choose the one you really want? <laughs>